So it's a question I've been asking, the question for today. Do you know the way to life? Every one of us is in a process of dying, even the youngest of us, even the little ones who were up with Mr. Andrew earlier, even our youth that are going on a mission trip. We're in the process of dying. So my question to you is, do you know the way to life? The deeper question, of course, is how could a mortal woman or man, such as you, such as me, how could any of us have life, life everlasting, life eternal? Now, if you're somewhat biblically literate, you might promptly say to me, well, Pastor Martin, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his monogone, his only begotten, so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then I'd have to ask you, but how do you get there? <laughs> how could you possibly have a connection with the monogone, the only begotten of God? And by the way, how do you even get to John 3.16? That's a spiritual question. It's also a biblical question. What leads up to John 3.16? We need to know these things. What is the way to John 3.16 and to the promise there of eternal life? Now, again, if you said to me, well, I actually know the Bible pretty well, so I can tell you that John 3.16 falls or flows from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And so let me give you some answers, Pastor Martin. What Jesus told Nicodemus in John, we see it written there in John 3.3. You must be born again, born anew, born from above. There's your answer. Or if you need another one, John 3.5. You must be, Jesus says, born of the water and the spirit. But again, I'd ask you, how do you get there? <laughs> how could you possibly be born again in the Holy Spirit, born of the water and the Spirit? How can dying people like you, like me, who have sold themselves to the way of death, you know, here's what, well, here's what the scripture says about us. We are selfishly treasonous, even the best of us. Selfishly treasonous against God, wanting to run our own lives, wanting to be in charge. Selfish, selfish and treasonous. Ungrateful to God and ungracious to other people. Sinful and unclean. That's what the Torah centers on. That's what Leviticus is all about. Like, how do you address not only your sin, but your uncleanness? The way you, there's no way you can come close to communion with God. How are you going to deal with that? How can we, as people of the way of death, be reconciled to the author of life? That's a challenge, isn't it? A lot of us who come to church just kind of assume, well, yeah, it's easy. God just loves us. Somehow it works out. No, no, the scripture is a lot deeper than this. You know, how can we as people of the way of death, be in the same room, be in the same eternity with the author of life, who is in himself selfless love. Remember how we're selfish and unloving? He's, he, he himself is within himself selfless love. 
who is gracious, yet sovereignly righteous and upholding justice. So then we would ask, and you can see this, I've got this in the introductory notes and the sermon notes today. How, can I do anything about this? Can you? No way. I, I can't do anything about this. Which brings us to today to God's shocking way to life. I mean, it is a shocking way to life. Grace through judgment. Grace and forgiveness through judgment. Life through death. Even the cross, where judgment and grace, mercy and holiness meet. Where heaven and earth meet the axis of everything. The cross, that's shorthand in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the Apostle Paul in particular, the cross is shorthand for the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ. The way to life from repentance to regeneration to rejoicing forever with him. So today we're going to turn to uh, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. In other words, the verses right before John 3, 16, and that flow from those verses that I cited earlier. For instance, John 3, 3 and John 3, 5, about being born again and being born of the water and the spirit. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Uh, we'll pick this up at verse 14 and read verse 15. This is Jesus speaking to the great high Pharisee, the great teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in the night asking to be enlightened. Jesus says this, hear now God's word. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I distinctly remember my first, happened to be my first trip ever to the Middle East, but also my first trip to uh, Jordan and to Mount Nebo specifically. I'd spent about a, a week in Syria and over towards Iraq and then down into northern Jordan. And, and now all of a sudden uh, we were ascending Mount Nebo. You know, we visited Madaba and now we're up going up Mount Nebo. And there at the windswept summit of Mount Nebo, I was focused on and expecting to reflect upon, you know, what you think about if you're knowledgeable about the Bible initially with Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo, it's where Moses was allowed to look over to the west and see the promised land from Mount Nebo. You may remember this. It's, it's recorded, uh, it, it's referenced in both Numbers, the book of Numbers, as well as uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy, you know, as we prepare for Moses' death. At the end of his career, although he is, he's been judged as unworthy to go 
into the promised land by the Lord God. The Lord God allows Moses, provides for him to ascend uh, the Abarim Ridge and to go up to the height of Mount Nebo and to look over, you know, over the Jordan Valley. In fact, over the entire, you know, there you can see the entire Rift Valley, really, uh, the, the Syro African Rift Valley that cuts through all the way, you know, through the Dead Sea and on down. You look to the south, you're looking at the Dead Sea, you look ahead, straight ahead, you're basically looking at that Jordan. Uh, valley and Jericho, and then you look beyond on a clear day, you can see all the way, uh, back in the 1990s, you could still see all the way to the Mediterranean coast. Uh, you know, there over, a little bit over here are the central hills, and you see Jerusalem there, and that's what I was kind of going to reflect upon. Moses at the end of his life, you know, being able to look over and see the promised land, but what struck me immediately uh, when when I was there at the summit of Mount Nebo was not so much the story of Moses, but all of a sudden a different story that had been imposed upon Mount Nebo, and I loved it. I, I saw it and I immediately knew what this was. I'd never seen this before, though. I hadn't prepped for this. Uh, there was that cross with the serpentine-type Jesus wrapped around it, and I knew immediately, oh, John 3. 14, 15, and Numbers 21. Wow. And there it was, and I'll take you through some scripture on this because this is what I was thinking at the time, and this is definitely what I still think about this. This is immediately calling us over to Isaiah as well and to other passages in the Old Testament about the banner of the Lord being lifted up, not only to look out over all people, but to draw all people unto himself. Now, classically, of course, you'd want this in Zion. Isaiah would definitely have it in Zion. But, hey, it's, it's overlooking. See, that, 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 that to the west, that's, that's, that's Israel proper there. That's, that's what you're looking at down below there. So that's, that's the serpentine cross that Giovanni Fantoni created. I, I learned later. The Franciscans were starting to rebuild that area. You know, there's the old basilica there at the top of Mount Nebo from the original one back from the 4th and 5th centuries. I mean, think about this one, <laughs> late 4th century. And then, and then the newer basilica that was built um, in the 5th and 6th centuries um, AD. That's, that's considered a new church over there, you know, built in the 5th and 6th centuries. But there it was. It, it reminds us of God's shocking way Back to the story about how God commanded Moses to fashion that bronze serpent and to raise it up on a banner. God transformed the repulsive sight of poison and judgment upon sin and death into an instrument to draw his people back to himself, those who would believe to life, to healing, to salvation. Well, you may remember the story uh, of the children of Israel wandering, you know, in the desert for, for, for nearly 40 years. When you, you get into numbers, you know, you start moving through and suddenly you're in the middle of the numbers and you're, you're, you're covering a lot of years, right? In fact, you know, the, the, the Hebrew name for, um, in, the, in the Jewish Bible, for, for the book of Numbers is Bamidbar, you know, in the, de in the desert. I mean, you're just, they're in the desert, 
um, you know, they start moving, they're moving on, and you're going through an entire generation that's not going to get to go into the promised land. And we've already read back in Exodus about all their rebellion and speaking out against Moses, and increasingly they move to the worst situations where they speak out not only against God's anointed, God's chosen leader for their, you know, the congregation of Israel, but also speaking directly against God. That's the first generation, right? Then you get to Numbers 21, and it's not real clear who all still left totally from the first generation, but we clearly have the second generation, the one that's going to get to go into the promised land. I mean, they're, they moved on up, right? And you get to Numbers 21, and we get this great revisiting of Hormah and the battle with the Canaanite king of Arad. After, you know, nearly four decades earlier, uh, the Canaanites had just totally beaten up on the Israelites after they were unfaithful um, and, and rejected, uh, you know, Joshua and Caleb and God's call. Th then we get a, a return in Numbers 21, and the Israelites are successful this time because they pray to the Lord, and they make vows to the Lord, and they take on the same folks. And they defeat them at Hormah, at, at the place called destruction. I mean, they win this time, right? And, and it's a little glimpse of the fact that God is going to, in fact, be able to miraculously lead them to victory and into the promised land. But then immediately after this, we get this, oh, no, this is another one of these stories like we read all the time back in the early days of the Exodus. Um, what happens is they cannot go through Edom. And so apparently God and Moses lead, you know, tell them that you're going to have to go back down toward the Red Sea, and you're going to have to circumvent a lot of Edom. And, and they start complaining. And, and again, this must be a lot of these folks are the new generation, and people are supposed to be primed to go into the promised land. They, they make the same kind of complaints. They talk about their past, their present, and their future, you know? The past was so much better. Oh, God, why have you got me in this present? My past was so much better. These folks are saying, why did you lead us out of Egypt? And we've got crummy situations here. We don't get real food. You just give us this manna every day. This stinks. And, and then look, well, who knows what our future is going to be? We're fearful. We don't trust you. And we're tired of you, God. And we're tired of the, your chosen leader, Moses. So the same thing happens yet again. And, and this time... In this situation, what we read in Numbers 21 is that God sends these poisonous snakes who are, in this part, I mean, the desert down south of Edom and Sinai. The snakes were very common back then. Very Even Lawrence of Arabia talks about the snakes down in that region. And the snakes come and they start biting folks and they start dying. And so the people then repent. And they go to Moses and they say, please pray to the Lord and ask him, please, to forgive us. We've been so bad. We repent. <laughs> and, and so then this is what gets us to what happens. So uh, 21, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery or poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten... When he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Now, the Hebrew there, that word for pole is nace, 
which can also mean banner. I'll come back to that same word, okay, banner. Um, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So, the serpentine banner, the sign of judgment, of death, that totally confronted the Israelites with their sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, really, a, a, a death, I mean, the sign of what's killing them and what leads to death becomes the way to life. It's shocking what God does here. And of course, it's incredibly prophetic about Jesus and his ministry. So anyway, this, this is what happens. So, so Moses makes this bronze serpent and he puts it on a nace, on, on um, a, a banner. Now, Dean uh, did his ordination exegesis on the book of Exodus chapter 17. And at the end of Exodus 17, this real complex chapter, I'm going through all that chapter, but the, at the very end, after this great battle where Joshua's a Joshua gets introduced in Exodus 17. He leads this great battle. And you may remember kind of the story where Moses has to keep his hands up on the rod, you know, and whenever his hands fall. So he gets Aaron and Hur uh, holding up his hands on each side and Joshua prevails and they win against the Amalekites. Kind of remember that story. And at the end of that, that chapter, Moses makes an altar there and he calls it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord, my banner. That's the first time you get that term. I mean, not just the title for God, but that, that term, that nace term in the Old Testament. And so you're supposed to think about this whenever you see it in the rest of the Old Testament. And so here we get it again. So God causes Moses to lift up this bronze serpent on this banner, okay? And then, of course, as a, as a Christian, just as a student of the Old Testament, you'd be thinking about, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor Martin, I remember now, because you preached on Isaiah for a year, and you preached on Isaiah 11 leading up to Christmas time, just, you know, half a year ago, and you preached on Isaiah 11 and how it says, I mean, it's just kind of amazing. You see the same thing. In that day, Isaiah 11, verse 10, the root of Jesse, that, that means Jesus, okay? He, he's not only the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, he's also the root. So he's like the source of Jesse. He's God, as well as being a descendant of Jesse. Remember that when we talked about that? So Isaiah 11, verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a, guess what? Nace, banner. The one who's coming, the promised child of Christmas, will stand as a nace, a banner. For the peoples, that doesn't just mean for the Israelites, that means like for Gentiles too. This is incredible. He's gonna stand as a, as a banner to the whole world, everybody, yeah. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. How can a grave be glorious? Well, if it's empty, it's seriously glorious. And of course, his resting place is really with the Father, right? Which brings us over to Isaiah. 52 verses 13 through 15. The first stanza of the five stanzas of the theological pinnacle of the entire Old Testament prophets and probably the entire Old Testament, right? The fourth servant song, the suffering servant song. And the first stanza, remember 
The first stanza, we spent a lot of time on this. I spent two or three Sundays, I think, preaching about this, right? You remember, stanza one and stanza five are God talking, God singing about his servant. And then the, the inner two, the mat, right, are the people and saying, we didn't think he was anything. We rejected him. And then the central one, he dies for our sin to atone for us. Remember that? Okay, let's just look at the opening stanza though here. Now look, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Like the banner, right? Like the root of Jesse. Yep, yep, yep. Like, wait a minute, something else was lifted up for people's salvation in the midst of their sin. What was that? A bronze serpent way back when? Yeah. He shall be lifted up. Vanisa. And shall be exalted. And then God has this little line where he speaks directly to the, the servant. He says, as many were astonished at you. Because it's shocking. I mean, the servant of the Lord is going to be unrecognizable in his dying for our sin. L listen to this. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Think about Jesus there on the cross, right? And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Could translate shock or disturb many nations. He's going to revolutionize the world, but he's going to sprinkle us for sure, right? With his own blood. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. I've never heard of something like this. The God of the universe, the Son, the only begotten of the sovereign God, the King, dying for a bunch of rebellious, treasonous, selfish people? That just doesn't happen with kings. Oh, yeah? That which has not been told them, now the kings see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This, of course, great opening stanza of the fourth servant song confronts us with the enigma. As Matir puts it, you remember, talk about Matir, love his commentary on Isaiah. How can such an exaltation, verse 13, arise out of such suffering, verse 14? How can such suffering lead to universal benefit and acknowledgement, verse 15? Give me those three verses. You've got the whole Bible and the whole gospel summed up. There it is. Okay, but even if we are forgiven, how can dying people have life beyond the grave? Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, that's where it's recorded, what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, there he's talking about himself as the servant, as the one who stands in for us, and as the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead, all of the above, yep. So must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
I've already mentioned son of man. That is Jesus' preferred term for himself above all others. And he's here using it very distinctly, pulling in all these scriptures we just talked about and a number of other ones, you know, all the way through Daniel 7, etc. He shall be lifted up. The huposothene there, that can mean be raised, like literally raised, but also can mean exalted. And if you ask me, which one is Jesus talking about? I'd say both. He's going to be hoisted and foisted on the cross in the most brutal death possible in your place, in my place. And in that degradation, he is exalted before the eyes of the Lord, the Father. And then he's also going to be exalted in his resurrection, in his ascension, and when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to establish the kingdom that has no end. All of the above. All of the above. The Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus uses this term three times in John's Gospel. John is very specific about threes and sevens, if you've heard us talk about John before. And so we get it again. Jesus in chapter 8 says uh, to, to his opponents, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Now notice this, in both these cases, we're talking about passive. He gets lifted up, okay? First by sinners on the cross, and ultimately by God His Father in exaltation. And then chapter 12, 32 and 33, when I am lifted up from the earth, hear that? When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, just like Isaiah said, yes? And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's lifted up. Have eternal life. Zoane aonion. In the Greek that we get it in from John, that term means life in the age. That means life in the age to come. The Jews thought about this present life and the age that is to come. Okay? We translate it as eternal life or everlasting life. But here's the main point, biblically, is like if, for, for, if you're with God, you're beyond time, right? So <laughs> we start thinking in terms of time. No, no, no. It's, it's, as, as, um, the key thing you're talking about here is quality, not quantity. You're not marking a watch anymore or a digital device on your smartphone with Jesus in heaven, okay? <laughs> in the age to come, it's the age to come. It's different, right? Because you're set free. God is above and beyond all time. As Westcott puts it, the key thing here is not endless duration in time, but an existence in which time has no measure. That's what Jesus is saying there. Anyone who believes in me who looks to me will have life in the age to come, which has no measure, which blows away anything else that we've ever experienced in this life. And of course, does not end. It just has no terminus. Whoever believes in him, Jesus died to give you life through himself. Are you looking to him? Why did Jesus die? To glorify the Father and to restore you to the Father, to give you life. If you're not looking to the full revelation of the crucified Jesus in judgment and grace and life 
You have nothing. Christian, turn and look to Jesus, exalted to die for your sin and exalted to give you life with him, with himself in glory. That's the way to life, the crucified Christ. Jesus died to reconcile us, to reconcile you to your creator, to bring you home. Eternal life is not something that you get that's like an insurance policy that puts you on life support somewhere in eternity. <laughs> it's, it's living with Jesus. It's being with Jesus. It's being all about Jesus. And if we're not looking to him now, we definitely will not be looking to him then. Look to him now. Trust in him. Give yourself to him. As Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is now hid with Christ in God. May your eyes, may your soul, may all that you are be turned to him, trusting in him and rejoicing in him now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.